Making Space, a podcast about the unique ways that theme parks tell stories. In this episode, we'll discuss why theme parks must tell stories in unique ways. Hi there. My name is Ian Kay. I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. As for me, I'm proud of the content, but I know that listening to an unbroken half hour of some dude talking about theme park narratology can be, as one listener put it, an eternity to the modern ear. That's a good note. I agree, I'm sorry about it, and I thank you for bearing with me. Unfortunately, I'm poor, and bad at producing audio, and I'm not a musician. As soon as I have disposable income, rest assured I'll hire a producer and invest in background music. Cough Patreon link is in the show notes. Cough. Wait, I read that wrong. Cough Patreon link is in the show notes. Cough. (sighs) Excuse me. For now, though, I may not have money, but I have something even better. A wife. Hello. This is Claire. She's my wife and my best friend, and soon she'll be the mother of my child. And in this episode, she'll be my co-host. I figured the show might be easier to listen to if it's phrased as a conversation. I doubt it. Your voice is so masculine yet sensitive, wise yet self-effacing, stimulating yet reassuring. If you ask me, anyone who wants more than just your voice is greedy. Thanks, Claire. I couldn't have said that better myself. Am I going to have to read more lines like that? Probably not, but you know, let's see where the mood takes us. You are definitely taking me to Cheesecake Factory after this. Yes, dear. Um, Shall we get started then? Sure. Do you remember, back in the first episode, when I talked about Mark Davis? Was he the theme park storyteller who claimed that theme parks don't tell stories? That's him, all right. As a reminder, uh, Mark Davis was instrumental in designing The Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, Jungle Cruise, and a million other masterpieces. Unfortunately, Disney started making a bunch of poor design choices in the parks, and they used story as a buzzword to justify them. Mark struck back, but... For some reason, he attacked the buzzword, not the problem. Instead of taking a stand against bad theme park storytelling, he declared that theme parks shouldn't tell stories at all. What exactly did he say? Well, he spoke out about it a few times, but here's one of his quotes. For about two or three years, the Haunted Mansion was kind of a dead duck, really. These guys worked on it, but all that work on a story bogged the mansion down to the point where it just wasn't done. What I remember was Walt's attitude about these rides at the time. He felt they were a medium where you have experiences, a flash of this and a flash of that, everything within a subject matter, and it doesn't have a lot to do with the continuity of story. That was what Walt believed, and I never disagreed with him. He didn't like the earlier direction the Haunted Mansion was taking where they were trying to tell a story. But the Haunted Mansion does tell a story. You explained it in the second episode. Yeah, well, you may be surprised to learn that what I have to say carries less weight than what one of the greatest theme park designers of all time has to say. What about what the ride itself says? Because it tells a really clear story. Would you mind reminding us of what that story is? The mansion is a retirement home for ghosts. They have a vacancy, so they open up the house to the living. We tour through so that we can decide whether we want to move in after we die. Exactly. There's a lot more in the ride, but that story is what brings it all together. It organizes all of the tones and themes and jokes and ideas and scenes and characters into a coherent, satisfying experience. But to be honest... I do think it's easy to miss the story if you're not looking for it. How do you mean? Well, I've been riding the Haunted Mansion all my life. I've loved it ever since I was a toddler, but it wasn't until after I got my master's degree and started seriously studying narratology that I figured out what the ride's story is. But they say it. Who? Everyone. The ghost host, the servants, the choir who sings the song, Little Leota. You're right. Uh, Once you realize that there is a story, it's not subtle. Why do you even need to realize it? The ride can't shut up about it. Our tour begins here, where you see paintings of our guests as they appeared in their corruptible mortal state. Yes, but... Now look alive and we'll continue our little tour. I think what I didn't realize... There are several prominent ghosts who have retired here from creepy old crypts from all over the world. You're not going to do the whole... Actually, we have 999 happy haunts here, but there's room for a thousand. Any volunteers? 
If you insist on lagging behind, you may not need to volunteer. Look, now I know If that... you should decide to join us, final arrangements may be made at the end of the tour. You're preaching to the choir. Our but... library is well stocked with marble busts of the greatest ghostwriters the literary world has ever known. They have all retired here to the haunted mansion. To be fair, in that scene... We find it delightfully unlivable here in this ghostly retreat. Every room has wall-to-wall creeps and hot and cold running chills. The focus is on... If you would like to join our jamboree, there's a simple rule that's compulsory. Mortals pay a token fee. Rest in peace, the haunting's free. So hurry back, we would like your company. Okay, so the song does literally become an advertising jingle for the retirement home. But on Hurry the other- back, be sure to bring your death certificate if you decide to join us. Make final arrangements now, we've been dying to have you. When you spell it out like that... I'm not spelling it out, the ride is. They say it, they say it over and over, it couldn't be clearer. Are you saying that theme park stories are easy to understand? When there's voiceover narration explaining them directly to you, yeah. That's fair, but I don't think I'm alone. Theme park stories can be hard to discern even when they're announced at us repeatedly for 20 minutes. So, if I asked you to describe the story of the Haunted Mansion back before you started studying theme parks, what would you have said? Something vague, like you go through a haunted house. Well, it is true, but that could just as easily describe The Shining as an all-ages Disney ride. Or maybe I would have synopsized individual beats, you know, the portrait stretch, there's a ballroom full of partying ghosts, a ghost sat next to us at the end. And you think there are other riders who would have the same difficulty seeing the forest from the trees? Absolutely. Even theme park nerds like you? (laughs) Especially theme park nerds like me. If we gathered all of their attempts to analyze what happens in the Haunted Mansion together in one place, we'd have an all-you-can-eat buffet of word salads. So why are theme park stories even the ones that are painstakingly narrated, so hard for the audience to notice. Because theme parks tell stories differently than other art forms do. They have to. They're designed to. In this episode, we're finally ready to explore why theme parks must tell stories in unique ways. Before we start, a warning. You might want to strap in. Let me guess. Even though it's easy to understand why theme parks have to tell stories in unique ways, It'll take us a while to spell it all out, and before we can even get started, we have to cover 17 basic concepts. Only three basic concepts this time. Only three? Child's play. But it may be a bit confusing because the three basic concepts will seem unrelated at first. They all come together in the end, though, right? Right. The journey won't be straightforward, but its destination is satisfying. Okay, so let's start. We've got three seemingly unrelated concepts to cover. What's the first? Story. What about it? It's purpose. The purpose of story? Yeah. Why do you think story is important? Because they're fun and I like them. Next question. I mean, pragmatically. Like, designing art is hard, and designing a story is hard, so why bother designing narrative art at all? That's just double the work. What does story bring to the table? Well, without story, art wouldn't have context. It would be all abstract and meaningless. For example? For example, what do you get if you combine a cricket, some wood, and the concept of sin? I don't know. What? Three random things. But if you add a story, you can turn a cricket, some wood, and the concept of sin into Pinocchio. Well said. So, story is the system that keeps the audience paying attention to the artwork. It's the organizing consciousness, or the intelligent design. Story takes all of the components of the artwork, the colors and shapes and style and music and settings and characters and performances and dialogue and plot and pacing and tone and themes, and it arranges them all into a satisfying experience for the audience. I thought story is something that's, like, kept in a book. It's not an experience. True, but story does manufacture experiences. Like what? Making us laugh, educating us, dazzling us with beauty, piquing our curiosity, giving us a thrill, persuading us to try the new limited edition Extreme Quesadito from Taco Bell, and so on. So story is just psychological manipulation? Yep! Or whatever the less malicious way to say that is. First, the storyteller figures out what kind of experience they want us to have. Then, they design the artwork to manipulate us into having that experience. So, when you design a story, you're trying to psychologically manipulate every single person who might ever someday be in the audience for the rest of time? That's ambitious. It's not easy, but it does pay off. When a story gives us an experience, it makes us feel included. 
It reminds us that the storyteller created a small alternate universe just to make us feel happy or pensive or hungry for Taco Bell. I guess that is pretty flattering. And it rewards us for paying attention to the artwork. How so? Well, imagine a movie without a story. It's just a bunch of random images. Every five seconds it changes from one image to another. Please don't make me watch your film school project again. I won't. I destroyed it on our wedding day, as I promised. But imagine if my film school project wasn't a slim 17 minutes and 43 seconds, but rather feature length. Imagine watching two hours of monotonously edited random images. Then it would be really difficult to sit in the dark and stare at a screen for two hours. But if it's all arranged into a story, we won't mind sitting in the dark and staring at a screen for two hours. Story gives us conflict, which makes us root for certain outcomes, and plot, which parcels out what happens and gives us a reason to keep watching, and characters, who we identify with, and they're all there to manufacture experiences for us, like making us laugh or learn or crave Taco Bell. Why do you keep bringing up Taco Bell? It started as a joke, but then I got hungry. Well, dash those hopes, because you promised me Cheesecake Factory. Yes, dear. Tell you what, I'll compromise. Let's say I'm a storyteller, and I want to persuade the audience to try the new Taco Bell-flavored cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. Oh my god, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. So, now I have to design the commercial, and every single decision I make has to manipulate the audience into having the experience I want them to have. Exactly, so how do you want to light this queso cake? Bright enough to show the sheen, but not so bright that you can see the grease from the seasoned beef seeping into the graham cracker crust. What color do you want in the background? Powder blue. It'll contrast with the shredded cheese. Do you want to show someone eating it, or would you prefer a close-up of someone cutting a slice from the cake? I doubt we'll find an actor who can look convincingly happy to eat it. So let's stick with the close-up. Good call. So you design this story, and if you make effective choices, then the audience will have the experience you intend them to have. They'll pay attention to the artwork because they find it appetizing. On the other hand, if you make ineffective choices, then the audience will have an experience that you didn't intend for them to have. Maybe they'll space out, maybe they'll make fun of the commercial, whatever it is, they're not paying attention in the way that you want them to. And this is true of all stories? Whether you're proposing to Elizabeth Bennet, blowing up a Death Star, or selling junk food, yes, this is how all stories are designed. Okay, so to recap, story is the system that keeps us paying attention to the artwork. Correct. Story holds our attention by manufacturing experiences for us. When it makes us laugh or cry or think or press buttons, we feel involved, like we're playing along. Perfect. Now what's the second seemingly unrelated concept that we have to cover? The concept is called location art, but this is really a two-part subject because we can't talk about location art until we talk about traditional art. Then what is traditional art? Traditional art is just shorthand for all of the most revered art forms. You know, the ones you think about when you hear the phrase, the arts. What, like movies and books and plays and comics and paintings and music? Exactly. In this episode, we're lumping all of those popular art forms into a group called traditional art. Okay, so now what is location art? Location art is my term for a work of art that's made up of locations. Just as books use words and paintings use graphics, location art uses physical space. This broad category includes all of the art forms that shape our surroundings. Like landscaping, architecture, interior design, and urban design? Those are some of its main disciplines, yes, but location art also has a fun side. Such as? Such as? <gasps> Museums and zoos and aquariums and cruise ships and nightclubs and casinos and arcades and tiki bars and tree houses and pillow forts and gardens and mazes and labyrinths and escape rooms and immersive theater and art installations and bouncy castles and ballparks and bowling alleys and laser tag arenas and playgrounds and swimming pools and gymnasiums and paintball courses and obstacle courses and golf courses and mini golf courses and parks and water parks and amusement parks and, of course, theme parks. Whoa. Is there a term for this category? There are several, including attractions themed design, location-based entertainment, and site-specific art. Ugh. I know, we're still working on what to call it. But these attractions all use locations to create meaning for the audience, so they all share the same principles of design. That seems pretty straightforward. What's the last seemingly unrelated concept that we have to cover? The fourth wall. Hasn't everyone already learned about that in language arts class? Hopefully, but just in case, will you give us a refresher? The fourth wall comes from the theater 
let's say that we're producing a play and that this play takes place in a rectangular room. If we build all four walls of the set, then the actors will be boxed in and the audience won't be able to see them, which kind of defeats the point. Instead, we only build three of the walls and we omit the fourth wall, the one that would block the audience's view. Exactly. Uh, as a general concept, the fourth wall is the thing that contains the art. It's a big deal because it dictates how the audience interacts with the artwork. How do you mean? Well, let's work this out. Um, let me ask you, where can we find the fourth wall in traditional art? In the theater, it's the stage. In movies and TV shows and websites, it's the screen. In prose and poetry and nonfiction and comics, it's the page. In paintings, it's the canvas. In podcasts and recorded music, it's the speakers. So in traditional art, the fourth wall is always a single location. That's right. The artist only has to worry about the design in that one location, and the audience only has to observe that one location. It's convenient. But it's also kind of antisocial. It puts the art on one side and the audience on the other. It uses the fourth wall to keep us out. So, for instance, if we try to give Ophelia a pep talk, we'll get thrown out of the theater. Or if we try to spar with Jackie Chan, we'll punch a hole in the screen. If we try to eat the sweet cold plums in the icebox before William Carlos Williams can get to them, we'll get a mouthful of paper. In short, traditional art is designed to be condescending. It doesn't care what we think, doesn't want our input, it doesn't want us to play along. It wants us to just sit there, polite and obedient and servile, while it displays its art at us so that we can fawn over its genius. Ian, you're getting angry at an abstract concept again. Good save. I appreciate that. That's my job. All right, so traditional art uses the fourth wall to keep us out. How does location art use it? In the exact opposite way. In location art, we physically enter the artwork, so the fourth wall keeps us in. It surrounds us with art, which makes it easy to forget whatever's going on outside. For example? Well, in Disneyland, the main fourth wall is the berm, which is a gigantic forested hill that surrounds the park. This berm blocks us from seeing the parking lots and freeways and hotels and everything else that's outside the park. It's also designed to look like background, which keeps us focused on our surroundings inside. You called it the main fourth wall, so I'm guessing there are others? Yep. There are several locations, like break rooms, trash compactors, and maintenance garages, that the park needs in order to operate, but which aren't part of the actual artwork. We aren't supposed to enter or even notice these places, so as a result, the park hides them behind smaller fourth walls, like facades and landscaping. So, like, all of those buildings on Main Street USA that we can't enter are actually just a fourth wall that's hiding a bunch of cubicles? And parking lots and employee cafeterias and parade float storage. But from our perspective in the audience, we're surrounded on all sides by an American town in the 1900s. Okay, so in location art, the fourth wall keeps us inside the artwork. It surrounds us with art on all sides, which distracts us from the real world that's both outside and backstage. Exactly. How do we know where to focus? What do you mean? Well, in traditional art, the fourth wall displays the art in one location, like a stage or a screen or a page or a canvas. Scenes and characters and settings may change, but the audience is always observing that one same location. But in location art, the fourth wall displays the art all around us in every single location that we can see. How does the audience know which part to focus on? Well, that's the challenge, directing the audience's attention from exhibit to exhibit, scene to scene, room to room, floor to floor, building to building, and or district to district. Okay, but how do they do that? Wait, don't tell me. It's story, isn't it? It is story, yes. But it can't just be any old story. It has to be a story that's specifically designed for location art. Why? Well, consider Star Wars. Star Wars is a story that's designed for traditional art. It was originally a movie, but it's not hard to imagine what it would be like if it was adapted into a book or a TV series or a comic or an opera. I'm pretty sure they've already done that. My point is, it would be easy to adapt the story into another form of traditional art, but it would be really difficult to adapt it into a form of location art. Why would that be difficult? Imagine how great Star Wars would be as a bowling alley. True, but... The ball dispenser could look like R2-D2! You could absolutely dress the bowling alley up to look like the movie, but you couldn't tell the actual story of the movie, with all of its characters and plot and dialogue and themes, without distracting from the bowling. Does this mean we're finally ready to ask the big question? 
do it. <laughs> Why do theme parks have to tell stories in unique ways? What's the difference between a story that's told through traditional art and a story that's told through location art? Simple. In traditional art, the fourth wall keeps us out, so its stories are designed to manufacture passive experiences for us. What, like laughing, crying, or advocating on the internet that fictional characters who are not in a romantic relationship should be in a romantic relationship? Exactly. These experiences may be satisfying, but they're ultimately just reactions. The artwork stays exactly the same whether we have them or not. Wait a minute. I've listened to the second and third episodes of this show. What you're describing sounds like a third-person story. It is. Thanks to the fourth wall, traditional art is pretty much forced to tell stories about characters who are not us in the audience. Meanwhile, in location art, the fourth wall keeps us in, so its stories are designed to manufacture active experiences for us. Like eating, exploring, or competing? Or chasing, singing, hiding, flying. If it's physically possible, it's fair game. The goal is to get us playing along with the location. We have to participate, or else the artwork doesn't exist. That can't be true. If I own a bowling alley but it's empty, I still have a bowling alley. Ah, but you don't have any bowling. You have everything you need to tell the story of a game of bowling, except for your main characters. Ah, now you're describing second-person storytelling. I actually guessed that a while ago, but you were on a roll. Thanks. And yes, that's right. Because of the fourth wall, location art is designed to treat us not only as members of the audience, but also as its protagonists. At your hypothetical bowling alley, everyone who visits gets their very own second-person story about the time they went bowling. They personalize the story by how well they play, who they're competing with, what size and color ball they use, and how flamboyant their victory dance is. So these experiences are all manufactured by the story, but the story can't exist without its main characters. Okay, so traditional art manufactures passive experiences, whereas location art manufactures active experiences. Is it time for the Cheesecake Factory? Not quite yet, I'm sorry to say. Uh, we've covered why traditional art and location art have to tell different types of stories. Because of how they use the fourth wall. Right. And we've covered how they each use story to retain our interest. By manufacturing passive and active experiences. But we haven't covered how traditional art and location art tell stories differently. How do you mean? Well, thanks to the fourth wall, traditional art and location art use two different design languages to tell their stories. In traditional art, we can't physically enter the artwork, so the stories are mostly conveyed through characters. They act as our surrogates. They ask the questions we want to ask, convey the information we want to know, and perform the actions we want to perform. Like Harry Potter, he spends half the series asking other characters to recite exposition to him, and he has all the fun experiences we want to have, like playing Quidditch, being sorted into a Hogwarts house, exploiting elf slavery. So the Harry Potter series is conveyed mostly through its characters. Without them, the story wouldn't work. It would just be an empty castle full of empty picture frames. Meanwhile, in location art, the story is mostly conveyed through... can you guess? Really, really cerebral podcast hosts? Yes, but location art also conveys its stories through locations. Since we can physically enter the artwork, we don't need characters to act as our middlemen. We can do whatever we want. That sounds fun for us, but tough for the designers. What if we don't do what the story wants us to? What if we wear shoes in the bouncy castle? Claire! Answer the question. Well, that's the challenge. How do you manipulate the audience into playing along? The stories have to use their locations to prompt us to ask the right questions, discover the right information, and perform the right actions. For example? For example, take the Swiss Family Treehouse. There is not one single character present in that attraction. It's just a giant treehouse that we pass through. So how does it prompt us to ask the right questions, discover the right information, perform the right actions? It lures us in by being a humongous tree with a water wheel. We know we can enter because there's a bridge over to it, and we know we're supposed to climb because there are stairs. The treehouse is made of the remains of a wrecked ship, which prompts us to imagine how the Robinsons built it. We pass by the family's room, which prompts us to imagine what it would be like to live there, but we know we're only meant to ogle their belongings because they're all cordoned off. And all of this voyeurism prompts us to imagine where the Robinsons are now, since we're snooping around their home while they're out. Were they rescued? Did they die? 
I like to imagine that they're out doing chores. That's one of a million reasonable answers. It's deliberately left open-ended. This makes space for us to play along as the storytellers, and the only right answer is the one that amuses you. And we understand all of this, at least subconsciously, because of the way the location is designed. There's no need for characters to spell anything out for us. Right. You couldn't really tell this story through traditional art. Why couldn't it be adapted into a characterless picture book, like Goodnight Moon? It could be, but it wouldn't be as effective, because the storyteller would be spoon-feeding us all the clues, like, Hey, here's an illustration of the water wheel. You're only allowed to see it from this one angle. Also, it doesn't move. Say, did you know that the Robinsons built the water wheel to provide running water to the whole treehouse? And like, I didn't, but if you explained it through location art... If you let me use all five of my senses, control my own pace, and pick my own vantage points, then I bet I could have figured it out for myself, and I bet deducing it would have been a much more satisfying experience than having it announced to me. Gotcha. So in traditional art, the storyteller just shows us what's important, but in location art, we get to discover it for ourselves. Perfectly said. You know, now that we've gone through all of that, I think I understand how someone could miss the story of the haunted mansion. Oh? We're so conditioned by traditional art. We're used to thinking that a story can only be something that we observe, not something that we participate in. And we're used to having our stories spelled out for us by a cast of characters. So when location art brings us inside the fourth wall, when it treats us like the protagonists who can play along, and when it encourages us to use our surroundings to deduce the story for ourselves, it's easy to get so caught up in the experience that we forget we're being told a story. But does a ride like the Haunted Mansion even need to tell a story if the audience misses it? To be clear, I don't think anyone actually misses the story. The story is the ride's internal logic. So it's inextricable. Exactly. It justifies why every single thing, including us, is in the ride. It explains why we're passing through the location. Hurry back. We've been dying to have you. And it shapes the way that the characters interact with us. Drag your bodies away from the walls. And it dictates which parts of the mansion the ghost host is willing to show us. Which is a shame. I would love a Downton Abbey-style ride through the servants' quarters. But you're right, it wouldn't fit in with the open house plotline. So in short, the story is the experience. Once you've been on the ride, then you've been told the story, regardless of whether or not you noticed it. Right. So long as we pay attention and enjoy the ride, the story is working. Still, it's kind of a shame. In traditional art, the storyteller is revered. But in theme parks and other forms of location art, the storyteller's work can go unnoticed. It's a thankless job. That's true, but being noticed isn't all that. Imagine if, uh, halfway through the Haunted Mansion, a ghost mistakes us for bank robbers. So instead of touring through the ballroom and the attic and the graveyard, we, like, flee onto a ghost train and get chased by ghost dinosaurs, but fortunately we get rescued by the Ghostbusters! Ew. But more people would notice that version of the story. At the cost of having a satisfying, coherent experience. Right. That's why theme parks are simultaneously the most noticeable and least noticeable art form. On the one hand, they use the fourth wall to surround us with art on all sides for as far as we can see, hear, touch, smell, and or taste. On the other hand, they tell stories that are 99% invisible. They create a neighborhood's worth of locations, wherein every single inch is designed to psychologically manipulate tens of thousands of people per day. And if it works, then we feel included and excited and satisfied without even realizing that it's because we've been told a story. That's fascinating. Do you really think so? Yeah. Also, I'm hungry, and I don't want you to start another tangent. Mm, I've still got to do the creative prompt. Do you want to co-host that with me, too? Okay, but I hope you understand how many wife points I'm racking up. Yes, dear. And I'm sure you'll cash them in when I'm least expecting it. All right, so after a quick break, we'll be back with the creative prompt. Stick around. And we're back. Claire, will you remind us what the creative prompt for this episode is? Disney has built five different versions of the Haunted Mansion, and they placed each one in a different land. California's version is in New Orleans Square, Florida's is in Liberty Square, Tokyo's is in Fantasyland, Paris's is in Frontierland, and Hong Kong's is in Adventureland. Each version was designed differently so that it would fit into its new surroundings. Today, that power is yours. You are now President Imagineer. Congrats! Your job? Pick any attraction and explain how you would redesign it so that it thrives in a new land. That's right. We're relocating rides. That's a lot to ask of our audience. I'm impressed any of them responded. 
please. Even if this wasn't an interesting subject, a fun activity, and a masterfully phrased prompt, our audience is as imaginative as they come. They sent us a million great responses. Such as? Such as Tumblr user Bone Marrow Soup, great name, gave a very validating response. They didn't really want to change the ride so much, but they, they wanted to move It's a Small World to Epcot. Uh, to act as a transitional ride between Future World and World Showcase, which is super, super validating because I've been saying that for years. You have been saying that for years. Such a good entrance to World (laughs) Showcase. And they say that the exterior would be designed to more reflect its small world from the 1964 World's Fair, which would fit into the Future World theming, sort of that sleek, weird, interesting architecture. And then more cultures would be added, uh, like Paris's version of the ride. Uh, which we did not get to do on our honeymoon. I think it was closed. It was, it was closed. Tragic. Also, the entrance would be in Future World, and the exit of the ride would lead into the World Showcase. I love that. Isn't that great? Yes. Yeah. I, I, it hurts me that that doesn't already exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, Small World's an interesting ride, because like it is kind of functionally a non-fiction ride in a fiction park. Like It kind yeah. of doesn't belong it well tragically it's in fantasy it's very land. rude in fantasy land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah not in Tomorrowland, uh <laughs> where it could happen but in fantasy land where world peace will never happen <laughs> but yeah as, as like an uh, as like a transition between like you have to go through small world to get to future well maybe not have to but like that's the that's sort of that would become the ritual who wouldn't who wouldn't <laughs> i also really want uh, to relocate Carousel of Progress to the front of Future World. I kind of want everyone who goes through Epcot like to be required to sit through the Carousel of Progress, <laughs> and then like it's a great big beautiful tomorrow, and like look, holy God, we're here in the great big beautiful tomorrow. I just want to keep talking about putting its small world into Epcot. Like it just excites me so much. I just it's such a great idea. It's a great idea. Why haven't we done that? Why haven't we done that? Because there's like six feet of real estate we're living in the darkest (laughs) timeline yeah where we don't have it's a small world (laughs) yes the (laughs) world is beautiful dark world showcase (laughs) park yeah that's his prime example all right the next response was submitted by cara laura who blogs over at disneylanddilettante.com that's a good one i like that one um and she responds where is it here it is she would move the enchanted tiki room to Fantasyland, and instead of a bamboo hut, we gather inside a small cavern lined with glowing crystals and fanciful mushrooms and curiously shaped tree roots, and instead of tropical birds, the cave is inhabited by dozens of audio-animatronic gnomes, pixies, goblins, and assorted creatures of fairy folklore, and their singing develops two different factions, right? One group is trying to enchant us so that we stay forever in an unnatural trance, uh, and a more benevolent group, the other guys, they are undoing the enchantment to protect our free will. And then the climax is not the sudden arrival of a thunderstorm like it is in the Adventureland version of the ride, but rather a statue of the fairy queen in the middle of the caverns suddenly coming to life and putting an end to all the nonsense that woke her up from her nap. I love that. I think that's perfect. Isn't it? Yeah, I can really picture it. Yeah, completely. Like, down to the benches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that a lot. Down to the musty lighting. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a big nerd for Fantasyland. This is very exciting to me. I love it. Yeah, and something that I really love about it for Fantasyland is that it is not... It's it's an original premise. It's not adapting anything, which yeah. is something that Fantasyland, yeah. like, struggles with. Uh, have they ever done an original premise from Fantasyland? I'm trying to think. Maybe they have. I can't small think of Small World. Oh, Small World. Yeah, there it is. But uh, but yeah, this is, this is as we said, Small, small World is a nonfiction premise. And it, well, it's in Epcot now. So. And it's in Epcot now, so what's even <laughs> the point? But yeah, this is this is a fiction premise in a fictional land, and, uh, and yeah, it lives up to that theme really, really nicely. It feels like it would really belong into the, in the park, which... This reminds me of, in Disneyland Paris, the the dragon in the cave under the castle yeah i think we need more we need more caves and and caves like with 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 intimate like intimately designed caves sort of thing like quiet and intimate and i guess this wouldn't be quiet because they'd be singing i wonder (laughs) what they would be singing actually that's that's an interesting oh all right never mind then done yeah (laughs) solved it well done thanks All right, so we're going to take one more response from the audience. 
This one was submitted by Lafitte's Landing, uh, who blogs at lafitte'slanding.blogspot.com, another killer site. It just started, and uh, this is a longer one, but I think it's really worth it. Two of Tomorrowland's biggest issues, in their opinion, uh, are its lack of personal identity and its lack of attractions that tackle the big questions about the future that's so present in great science fiction. So Lafitte's uh, aims to fix that by moving the Hall of Presidents over from Liberty Square to Tomorrowland. Of course, here it's more of an intergalactic hall of future overlords, <laughs> which will play with the real and imagined history of Tomorrowland. Uh, the queue structure is very similar with a grand, illustrious, rotunda-type area, complete with exhibits of alien technology, outfits, and personal effects of the great leaders of the future. Uh, for example, a continental-style jacket with six sleeves and two collars. Um, in the center of the rotunda, we find our old friend the Timekeeper uh, from... Was that attraction just called the Timekeeper? I think it was just called the Timekeeper. Who do you think you're talking to? Oh. I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> My wife has gone to the parks since she was tiny, but uh, I don't. I don't. I'm not a nerd about it. She didn't though. like go anywhere. Not, she didn't like go on I don't rides just or know anything. Things. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Timekeeper hosted a show in what is currently the Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor, and it was a, a Circle Vision show, and it was voiced by Robin Williams. Uh, this sounds made up. Yes, uh, it felt a little made up, uh, <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest. But it was he was a cool animatronic, and it was voiced by Robin Williams, so he's he's fondly remembered. So the idea is is that in the center of the rotunda of the intergalactic hall of future overlords, uh, we would find our old friend the Timekeeper, who pontificates self seriously about the idealistic future we humans have ahead of us before we head into the main theater through time gates, uh, which I'm not sure where they need to be time gates since we're already in Tomorrowland and in the future, but whatever that's fine um maybe we're going even deeper into the future <laughs> the distant future they're just called time gates in the future oh maybe they're that's regular a, gates yeah <laughs> yeah they've just got like a clock motif all over them or yeah. something yeah that's good I like that. <laughs> Um, and once we get inside the, the theater, uh, we there's a video presentation uh, promising the historical highlights of Tomorrowland, the conquest of the space mountains, the advances in people-mover technology over the eons, while we wait for the collective leaders to arrive from their proper times and places. Through oh. the time gate. Yeah, I guess that's it. Okay. The presentation, however, is cut short by a laser blast that disintegrates the screen. I can imagine that effect. That sounds like a cool effect. Courtesy of a disgruntled alien audience member. I guess, like, the people who go to the Hall of Presidents and boo when the president <laughs> is announced that they don't like. I guess that's the idea. This character doesn't seem to be mentioned again. But anyway, um, so the, so so a disgruntled alien audience member uh, uh, shoots the screen with a laser and the screen disintegrates. The curtain opens early to reveal a mostly complete group of overlords, all animatronic, though some can be holograms, which is a cool touch. <laughs> That's a really good idea. Um, anything from Ward Kimball style robots, right? He was one of the great Disney animators and he famously uh, did... did uh, uh, drew a bunch of Martians for Disney cartoons that are really abstract and look like bibs and bots and what's not. Um, so anything from Ward Kimball-style robots to Star Wars-style aliens, uh, even a cameo from the Supreme Leader from Captain EO. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it's Angelica Houston's uh, uh, marvelously cheesy character. Uh, realizing that we haven't heard anything yet about the future, uh, each one tries to present their own version to us to prove how great they are and tell us uh, theirs is the future we should be looking forward to. Okay, so I guess the time gates, this is like an alternate reality thing. So they're all coming from their own time. Their own specific futures, right. That's and, cool, I like that. And so then it kind of, yeah, it kind of becomes like uh, an election. They're like pitching us <laughs> their future, right? They're like kind of campaigning to be <laughs> our future overlord. What would be the the objective of this, though? Well, hang on, maybe, let's keep reading. Maybe okay, there will yeah, be. let's do it. So they're presenting their own version uh, of the future to us to prove how great they are and tell us theirs is the future we should be looking forward to. We hear all sorts of ridiculous anecdotes from Tomorrowland's history, fictional history, before the tension in the room boils over and a fight is about to break out between the overlords on stage. Right in the nick of time, the final overlord arrives, 
Robo Lincoln. <gasps> this is literally an Abraham Lincoln animatronic with all robot parts showing aside from his face, which is still that of Honest Abe. He stands before us, compelling silence from the other overlords, and begins his speech. He tells us that there are things we can't possibly imagine in the future, both good and bad, but the key to facing them lies in the past. He recalls the words of his living predecessor and quotes his wisdom about having the courage to do what is right, even in the face of great adversity. That is how we create the better future we seek. The other overlords are moved by his words, applauding and bidding us luck as we exit back through our time gates, ready to create a brighter future after going on Space Mountain five more times. <laughs> I love the idea of learning more about Tomorrowland's history. Yeah. Really fleshing out that land, because it, it does feel the coldest of all of the lands. I think it's the land that we know least about, and there's nothing really in, in Tomorrowland to to tell us the kind of world that, I mean... There, there, you know, there actually is. This was the, in, the, in 1994. This is specifically Florida's Magic Kingdom, which is, I assume, what he's talking about, um, because that, Florida's the one that has the Hall of Presidents. Um, but in 1994, they redid it and made it let... It used to all look kind of like Space Mountain, but now it looks like it looks now, which I think is cluttered and terrible and textureless, <laughs> and I really... I know. I don't know. understand. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> but there is they, they they did put a lot of energy into explaining that oh this is an alien city it's an intergalactic hub you know there's the poster for Leonard Bernstar yeah uh, lots of lots of space puns lots of space puns and and to its credit I think it sometimes works I think on the People Mover it works really well it does feel like you're in some sort of like mass transit thing in a in an alien city but generally speaking I I feel like the fictional history that the land presents sunny eclipse mm -hmm. uh the animatronic in in the restaurant and there's a, a phone booth of the future where if you pick up the phone you can just hear other people's conversations because apparently in the <laughs> alien city that's they, what we need that's how phones work is yeah. that you can just chime into any <laughs> anyway um but so i i feel like it, a lot of that fictional history does exist you have to look for it um you have to know what you're looking for but and and that's fine. I, I'm I'm a big proponent of that. But my problem is is that the fictional history of this alien city of Tomorrowland in Florida rarely feels like it belongs in the same story as Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger Spin or Carousel Progress or yes, I would argue Space Mountain, in ways that like you know Jungle Cruise clearly belongs in Adventureland. Adventureland is clearly an extension of Jungle Cruise. Like they're symbiotic. Um, and same with Pirates and Caribbean Plaza. Same with. Thunder Mountain, Frontierland, you know, like they, those all belong in the same story. They're just chapters, I guess, in, in that one big story. But this yeah, one, yeah, Tomorrowland so to me just feels like they just stamped the future yeah. on everything, and and nothing really has to be right related. So I like the idea in this of um, kind of fleshing out the history, learning how we got to Tomorrowland that kind of thing totally and and besides doing that and being funny it, it offers us a, a, an interesting lesson about non-fiction attractions uh right because you know when you think of non-fiction attractions you think of epcot you think of uh, most of animal kingdom right and and the purpose of these non-fiction attractions is to teach us about the non-fictional subject matter right you go into the american adventure and ostensibly you learn about american history whether that is really representative is another question but <laughs> uh but you know you go on kilimanjaro safaris you're learning about these animals and it is it is there specifically to teach you about this subject matter but the intergalactic hall of future overlords uh shows us that you can use a non-fiction attraction full of fictional characters and fictional history to teach us about a fictional setting which is kind of neat. And that's kind of an interesting way to approach world building, I think. That's uh, very cool, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like it's like uh, I, I on the blog I compared it to I, I said it's like Epcot Center but designed by Martians. Like what would <laughs> what would a Martian's version of the Agriculture Pavilion look like or the Energy Pavilion? You know, like oh my like, gosh, now I want those things. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, we're not we're not yet. Uh, relocating rides to different planets unfortunately that'll be in a later prompt that's, that's the next one that's the next prompt stay tuned <laughs> it's not really there's another prompt for this episode we'll get to that in a moment <laughs> um claire do you you uh you came up with a i thought a brilliant idea a oh, brilliant response you. to this this prompt did you want to did you want to share it with us i'd love to 
but I forgot what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You wanted to move the people mover to the world showcase. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Anytime. (laughs) Yeah, my idea was to kind of do a a people mover type thing in, in Epcot's world showcase. It would go around all of the countries and maybe, you know, take us into each one in kind of the style of the the scenes in Disneyland's train. Or, or, or like the train going through Splash Mountain. Like the point would be we'd go through yeah. the, as we pass through each pavilion, yeah, you'd right? Pass you get through a scene each, of. Each country and, and have just a, a fun scene. Kind of, kind of similar to the way that they, they have the, the films in some of the pavilions, which I love. Um, but you know, more animatronics. <laughs> I think it would, it would be cool, um, to do kind of a, um, maybe like a hot air balloon and you can, it can kind of rotate as you're going through. I think that would be really cute. That would be really cool. And then, yeah, everyone's guaranteed to get sort of the same view yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And it would be handy for all of those, uh, all, all of the lazy people or the very drunk people to have. You know, a few stops. <laughs> yeah, we could have stations around the, the that World Showcase so that you don't big. have to walk so much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it would be really handy. Uh, and our big grump of a friend uh, who doesn't like theme parks, but he only likes the people yes, mover because the people mover. they don't, make, they you don't make you get off. Yeah. So you could you could stay on all day. You could just stay on all day, to. yeah, going around and the world. And who wouldn't? It's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> all right, shall we do mine? No. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Um, so I want to move the Tower of Terror to the Muppets Courtyard. And basically the idea is the Happiness Hotel. Uh, listeners, if you've, if you've never seen The Great Muppet Caper, you should, because I think it's one of my favorite movies. I think it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen, certainly. But they, 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 they go to this hotel that's run by Muppets, and it's as cataclysmic as you can imagine a muppet run hotel would be well there's no fire in the fireplace there's no carpet on the floor don't try to order dinner there's no kitchen anymore and so on and so forth it's it's really really good so so yeah we would be adapting the happiness hotel into hollywood studios um and and i think it would work really really well because at the moment they're they're right they're building star wars land in hollywood studios and uh one of the things that is associated with star wars land isn't an actual star wars hotel that's that's like connected to the park so you could stay in that hotel and it's all themed to star wars and isn't that fun and then you could go downstairs and you could be in the theme park um so since star wars land is getting its own hotel it would be fun to pretend that this is an equivalent muppet hotel and the queue would then be a parody of disney resorts uh you know disney resorts has done by the muppets and as we you know strap into the ride a character asks the age-old question from tower of terror why are there seatbelts in the elevator and another character replies, because guests keep tripping over them in the lobby. <laughs> uh, then we take an elevator up to our rooms, uh, stopping on every floor to witness the chaos. You know, it opens up and we see a scene of Muppets doing whatever they're doing. Uh, and when we finally reach our floor, a character exposits, there's no need to unbuckle. Uh, it's door-to-door service. And then with Muppet ingenuity and pyrotechnics, our elevator car pushes forward horizontally out of the elevator shaft, down the hallway, uh, uh, up to the door of our room, crashing through the door of our room into the actual hotel room and when we're in there we realize that our room was not structurally like constructed to be able to hold the weight of an elevator car uh, so we hear the sounds of the floor breaking and we plunge all the way back down to the ground floor and uh, uh, Pops who owns the Happiness Hotel ends the ride by saying if you wanted to check out you could have just rung the desk bell <laughs> and yeah that's my that's my I love that Muppets Tower of Terror. Let's do it. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. What are you I... doing right now? <laughs> oh, I'm recording a podcast. Oh, darn. Very busy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a shame. I don't have anything to say about this one. It's just perfect. It is. It's perfect. It cannot I... be improved upon. Yeah, I have nothing, nothing to add. <laughs> you truly are just like a genius and stuff. I don't know. You're not so bad yourself, kid. I know. Now, uh, if you folks want to read the other responses that were submitted, you can find them all at makingspacepodcast.com. Thanks to everyone who played along. We hope you had as much fun writing them as we had reading them. And this creative prompt may be over, but if you still want to play along, uh, don't worry. We've got a brand new creative prompt for you. Uh, Claire, would you please explain it to us? 
The Walt Disney Company specializes in both animation and theme parks, so it's easy for them to adapt their cartoons into attractions. Other animation studios, like DreamWorks, Ghibli, Laika, Aardman, and a million others, aren't as fortunate. Now it's up to you to help them out. You are the god of theme parks. Wow, promotion! <laughs> Your job? Pick a cartoon that was not produced by Disney, adapt it into an attraction, and tell us about it. Submit your responses to makingspacepodcast at gmail.com. The deadline is whenever I finish writing the fifth episode. So if the show has an episode after this one, better luck next time. Don't say better luck next time. Encourage them to respond to the prompt in whatever the most recent episode is. Good call. That's much nicer. I encourage you to respond to the prompt in whatever the most recent episode is. Anyway, let's wrap up this episode by asking you, yes, that's right, you, the listener, to subscribe, rate, review, and or recommend the show because we want a larger audience. Not only do we work hard to produce this, but we also want everyone to appreciate the unique ways that theme parks tell stories. Did you enjoy this episode? Did you enjoy the new format? Did you enjoy the new co-host? Do you want her to stage a coup, kicking Ian out and claiming all of the hosting duties for herself? If so, tell us. Tell your friends. Tell anyone you think might be interested. Theme parks are art, and it's time the world knew it. This episode of Making Space was written, co-hosted, and produced by Ian Kay. You can find his portfolio of theme park design at enkthemes.com. That's the letters E-N-K-themes.com. That's what I said. Yes, dear. <laughs> This episode was wedded and co-hosted by my wife, Claire. Me! If you want more examples of location art, I curate a blog on the subject, which you can find at location-art.tumblr.com. The show's logo was designed by Rob Yeo. Rob's portfolio can be seen at robyeodesign.com. And the show's music was composed by Alex Treese. Alex's tracks can be heard at alextriece.bandcamp.com. Shall we explode to music? If the explosion will toast my s'mores cheesecake, then fire away. In the next episode, an introduction to theme. Thanks for listening. See you next time.